Hello and welcome to this special edition of The Rules of Investing. I'm David Thornton. Today, my colleague Hans Lee is sitting down with Chris Watling, founder and chief market strategist at Longview Economics. After stints at KPMG and a British investment bank, Chris started his own consulting firm. He's usually based in London, but he has joined Hans in Sydney for an extended sit-down conversation about all things markets, asset allocation, and of course, the view from Europe. Over to you, Hans. Hello, I'm Hans Lee from Livewire Markets, and a warm welcome to all of you who are joining us on YouTube, the podcast, or the website livewiremarkets.com. And of course, an especially warm welcome to our guest, Chris Watling, founder and chief market strategist at Longview Economics. Thank Thank you for coming out from London and joining us. Great to be here. Absolutely thrilled. Looking forward to it. I've just mentioned there, you've come to us here to Sydney from London. I mean, we hear so much about the the issues that are happening over there in the UK at the moment. Just the inflation story, this massive cost of living crisis, electricity prices through the roof, businesses shutting down as a result of it. I suppose my first question to you is, is it as bad as they say it is? This is, (laughs) that's a good question. Well, why do you think I'm here? Um, It's that bad. Um, No, I mean, is it as bad as they say it is? There are some very serious challenges facing the UK economy at the moment and and the UK politicians. Of course, we've got a new king, a new uh, uh, lady lady to man in charge, and we've got a new prime minister. So it's, um, it's all changed and it's kind of interesting and challenging. And actually, the cost of a pint in London is shocking. Um, I actually went to a pub the other day to give you a sense of the crisis from, from my perspective. I mean, clearly, I'm, you know, it's not such a big issue for me. But you go to a pub, it costs £30 for three drinks. £30? Three zero pounds. I actually looked, I looked at the barman and he looked at me. And <laughs> <laughs> we had a moment. <laughs> it was like we both thought, wow. Um, so, yeah, it is, kind of, it is quite shocking. And I have 20-year-old sons who... Um, struggle to go to the pub because it's so expensive uh, for them. But, you know, I mean, how big is the crisis? There's clearly an inflation surge as there is around the world. There's clearly a new government in power or a new leader in the same government in power. And they're causing all sorts of challenges in markets with the chancellor and so on. So, yeah, there's plenty to worry about. And guilt sold off pretty hard the other day. But I I mean, people ask me what I think of the chancellor and his latest mini budget, Kwasi Kwarteng. uh, you know, I think, I mean, I think it's some good ideas at the wrong time. You know, you don't do a fiscal, unfunded fiscal stimulus package when you're dealing with an inflation problem. Um, you don't do an unfunded fiscal package that means you need to issue more debt at a time when everyone's selling government debt. So the, the, the interesting thing about these guys is they want to do supply-side reform. And I think we've got stuck in the West in a mentality of high-tax austerity. And we need to get into a mentality of lower-tax the supply side growth and we need to we need to change the supply side of the economy and drive faster growth so so their ideas are good i think they could do better on the supply side ideas but the, the thrust of it is good the timing i'm not so sure about speaking of the supply side let's reference an organization that can't control the supply side the bank of england you refer to quasi quatenda how difficult is their challenge at the moment just given the contrast and policy with with westminster well, it's harder, isn't it? You don't put in a fiscal stimulus when your central bank is trying to control inflation. Um, it's just like a no-brainer, really. So don't add to the demand side of the equation when it's already running a bit hot. But, you know, I mean, I think the, the real question we have to ask ourselves is how quickly will inflation go? Is this 1970s-style inflation that's going to be sticky and enduring? Or actually, are we in something different? Are we in a, a, a sort of what I would call a money-printing pandemic-type 
inflation surge that dissipates quite quickly or things as you saw in the world war, similar sort of stuff. So that, that's the key question I think we have to answer to answer the question about the Bank of England. Right. Um, when we last spoke in June, um, you, you know, you told me your you know, recession was not necessarily your base case. We were not necessarily in a, a bear market or a classic definition of a bear market. I suppose double barreled here. Has that view changed and how has it changed? Yeah, I think it has changed. It's evolved. So we have a whole bunch of indicators that tell us when a recession risks are rising in the US that we monitor that we think are very effective at forecasting recessions. And if I go back to May, June, there weren't many boxes being ticked. They were beginning to tick one or two. And if I look at the sort of range of indicators now, it's a lot of ticks and pretty, pretty serious ticks. So the recession risk, I think, is, is very significant for 2023 in the US. I think it's meaningfully above 50%, maybe 70, 80%. There's a lot of uh, boxes, as I say, that have been ticked on that. And money's very tight, and the Fed, I think, is making policy errors and will continue to make policy errors. And so, yes, that means to me we are in a bear market. And I think this bear market has chapters. And, you know, chapter one was a different ballgame to what chapter two will be over the course of the next six, nine months. And, I mean, who really wants to be a central banker right now anyway? <laughs> yeah. Sure. <laughs> I mean, it's not much fun. <laughs> no, I wouldn't but, say it's... No, but to be fair, fun. I think they're thinking about things the wrong way around. They're not... They're, the, the, the whole um, modus operandi of central banks is, uh, is outdated. Just take, take, take the RBA's inflation forecast. Mm. Take any central bank's inflation forecast. All they ever forecast is inflation heads back to two over two years. I mean, it's clearly not correct. I mean, it was very wrong nine months ago, it's going to be very wrong now. So in other words, the way they're thinking about life, I think, is wrong. I love what actually the, the, uh, the Reserve Bank Governor, uh, Philip Lowe, actually said the, uh, the, uh, the other week at the Annika Foundation lunch, he said, well, you know, lots of central banks have got inflation wrong, and that's leading to some soul searching. I wonder what that soul searching will look like and what that process will look like over the, the next well, few months. Well, it's an extremely good point, and I hope it's very dramatic because it's pretty clear that, you know, we've been in a 30-year debt super cycle. And, and a lot of that is, can be laid at, some of it can be laid at the doors of the central bank, which, which is basically a process of ignoring monetary metrics for three decades. Now, don't get me wrong, monetary, monetary theory has had its ups and downs, but so has what you would describe central banks today as doing, CPI targeting, uh, has allowed a massive build-up of debt in the global economy. Uh, you know, coupled with what's going on in terms of this massive build-up in mortgage debt and price of housing across the globe. These are really massive issues, both economically and politically. And I lay part of the blame at the door of the way we run central banks today. So, so yeah, so I think he made a good point. I mean, I did, what, what do they call him now? Flip-flop Phil? Yeah, something or, yeah. like that. <laughs> Poor fella. Among various a, other names. It's a very hard job. I yeah. understand that. Um, uh, it was slightly amused me unkindly that people are talking about bringing a class action suit against the RBA mm. for getting them into the wrong mortgage. That's kind of black humour, but probably in some ways quite tragic. But, but it just tells you the importance of what they're doing. I mean, would you subscribe then to the view that, that central banks will have to hike into a recession? And, and I only say this because I was talking to, to Ben Powell at BlackRock recently, who essentially said a deep recession is inevitable central banks will have to hike into a recession and they'll keep doing it until they realize what the trade-off is. And I wonder whether you share the same view. I think central banks will hike until something breaks, something meaningful breaks. And we had the first little chink in the armor of that 
with the British pension system the other day. You know, they broke that because they hiked too hard. And what did they really break? They basically broke a financial system, or a small part of it, which has been living off the cheap money trade for, for 10, 12 years. Really, that's what, what happened. The British pension funds had leveraged up to get more income, and they had margin calls, and, and they came under pressure, and the, and, the, and the central bank had to step in as a result. So, uh, you know, what kind of recession are we going to get? Inc increasing the risk is it's way beyond mild. Mild would be a great outcome from here, you know, and there's lots of challenges that all this sudden ratcheting up of interest rates is creating, I think. So how, how long will they hike for till something breaks that's meaningful? Okay, so if, you, if you've got that then, and I, and I suspect that's what you mean by the Federal Reserve is going to keep making mistakes, and that's the mistake, I think, is what you're referring to, right? Well, I'd say the mistakes are twofold. The mistake is they've already hiked enough. Mm. So inflation will be under, brought under control next year. So, so the best forecasters of inflation were the monetarists. Mm. And the best forecast, what they're saying now is that, that this inflation is going to dissipate pretty quickly. If you look at the money supply, it's, it's shrinking. So this, this is quite a, so, so I would say the mistake has already been made. We've tightened enough, number one, if you think about it in a monetary framework. But number two, they're going to keep on tightening, mm -hmm. even though they've done enough, and they're going to break something. Right. So if, you, if you've got that kind of as a, as a base case, talk us through then your, your most recent changes in your asset allocation strategy. Yeah, so, you know, in um, probably early June, we started moving underweight risk assets. So we sort of moved it around a bit in the build up to that around the war. Um, and we tilted initially at the start of this year away from US equities, which was kind of worked okay for a couple of months, the war through things. And then in June, we moved clearly underweight risk across all asset classes, credit and equities. And so we have two timeframes. So we think on a sort of six month to two year timeframe, that's where we're underweight risk. And then we also think on a month-by-month -month tactical time frame. We run separate portfolios mm. or, or, or paper portfolios, to be, be, be precise. And in the tactical one to four month, we were underweight up until the 27th of September. And now we flip that to an overweight. So I think there's a bear market rally for the next month or two. It's a funny old thing, psychology mm. in markets. You know, bear markets aren't straight lines. Of course, we get these big rallies. And it seems to us the bearish narrative is just too strong at the moment, and the models we have, which are very good at measuring fear and greed, suggest to us people are too fearful. So a bounce is due for a whole bunch of those kind of reasons. But, but you know, looking beyond that, six, 12 months out, I think you've got to be underweight risk assets, equities, credit, and so on. I think that's very interesting. The bearish sentiment, that there's too much of it. So it's almost like it's a contrarian almost in you, right? Just to kind of go digging to go, well, if everybody's so bearish all of a sudden, you know, is, is every, uh, things have come back such a long way. And That's right. I mean, it's a pretty vicious sell-off just since August, I think it was August 16th, we had mm. that local high. You know, in six, seven weeks, we sold off pretty hard. And, um, and, it, and, it, and it's sort of capitulation, I think, in that phase of the bear market. I always say bear markets have chapters. That phase was kind of marked by the British pension fund challenges, the blow up in bonds uh, and, the, and the Bank of England intervening. So I think the s and is trying to find a floor around here. You know, um, 3,600 was sort of at that sort of level. And if you look at things like the amount of options premium, put option premium that's been bought, it's through the roof in the mm. last two weeks. And that's a great contrarian. When everyone's hedged to the downside, that's why they're talking bearish. Yep. They're talking bearish, they're hedging bearish. It's in the price for now, and we get a counter trend move. But why don't we just kind of go to everybody's favorite topic, equities. 
Um, I know you're talking about that you're, you're underweight risk assets, but I was curious to read, you've actually got a, a small relative overweight towards US equities. Why are you still constructive on equities over in the, in, in the US? Well, I mean, let's be clear, we're not constructive on equities full stop. Mm. Um, we're underweight, it's a sort of relative underweight, yep. which, you're le- which you're less or more underweight of. Mm. Um, and you know, in bear market rallies, things bounce a bit more sometimes. Uh, because they got beaten up a bit more. So it's nothing more than a short-term blip, that. Um, but the reality is we're underweight equities in risk assets. That's the key. And within that, it, you know, you're arguing the toss, really. The main thing is to get your over-underweight equities correct. Got it. We know that you know, US earnings season is around the corner. Um, and you know, a lot of things are you know, being closely watched in that time. Some people are saying you know, this is the quarter to watch where the earnings will you know, be the shoe to drop and then that's the next stage of a recession. What do you think about the, the state of US corporates and, and balance sheets and how that looks to you? Yeah, I, I think, I think the, the proper recession time is not yet. Mm. We're building towards the recession. And if you think about the timing from an inversion of the yield curve to a normal recession, it's it's roughly a year. I mean, it, there's a, quite a wide span of time, but the curve only really inverted in July. Maybe it started to invert in April briefly. So we're not talking about recession now. Having said that, if you look at the housing indicators, they've deteriorated a lot. If you look at the manufacturing sector, it looks pretty poor. There's been a big inventory build, new orders have collapsed. So there, there are clearly things to worry about, confidence is on the floor, consumer and business. But I, you know, I just don't think the big collapse in earnings is yet. There might be some deterioration at the margin, but you know, I think it's a bit like Q2. It's too heavily anticipated. Okay. I think you know, the real, when employment starts falling off a cliff, when we get into 2023, maybe the middle of or Q2, that's when I think earnings really, really get hit. Interesting. Um, where, where does Australia then fit into, into all this? I know you look at you know, equities and actually asset classes all over the world. How does Australia fit into all this? How does Australia fit into this? Well, it's, it's a mixed bag, isn't it? It's, it's an interesting, you know, I, I think at times like this, when liquidity is getting tight, you don't want economies with current account deficits. Mm. As Mark Carney said, you don't want an economy that's dependent on the kindness of strangers, which is Britain, sadly, uh, heavily dependent on the kindness of strangers, which is good because we're a kind nation. So mm. we're looking for that to be reciprocated. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm not sure how kind people feel to us at the moment. But, um, but in terms of Australia, of course, there's a nice current account surplus, which is a great reflection of the commodity capacity of this country, really. So I, I'm in, in terms of the economy, instead, uh, as opposed to the stock market, I kind of be in two minds about Australia, because I just the housing market seems vulnerable to me, but I know it had a bit of a clear out a few years ago, maybe, and the banks have built up capital, so maybe it's not quite as bad as it seems, and it's not really a sort of a UK-US GFC moment. It's just a difficult housing downturn for six, 12 months. So maybe you can come on through that. On the flip side, the resource side is so strong. And we're in a commodity super cycle. What do you want? You want resources. And look at Europe. I mean, you're now exporting natural gas to Europe, which is incredible when you think how far it is. Mm. Uh, But a sign of the times. Um, Of course, it's so, so commodity rich. So from the economy's point of view, uh, I think it's kind of a mixed bag. From the stock market's point of view, I think it's where you should, should favour. Underweight everything, yep. but favour places like Australia and Canada in particular okay. on, a, on a structural basis. Well, that's, okay, that's very interesting. So, you know, you, okay, so if you're doing a, a relative overweight to Australia, and by relative we of course mean everything else is underweight, yeah. 
you know, so are you, are you saying then you'd be looking to, you know, put capital to work in something like the big four banks plus Macquarie, something like BHP, Rio Tinto, Fortescue, these kinds of organisations and these kinds of stocks? I think if I'm a medium term time frame investor and I'm, mm. I'm thinking uh, one to three to five years out on dips, I would buy certainly the resource stocks, BHP, stocks like that, strong balance sheets, a complete lack of capex in the commodity space since 2010, really. So it's a real lack of supply coming on. So that should support prices. So I, I think all that stuff's great. Mm. Gold, natural gas, etc. The banks, you, you know, you probably want to be selective, but um, you'd need to dig into the detail. I don't dig into the detail of all the banks. Of course. Of course, what I do know is the banking system is heavily exposed to mortgage debt. Yep. So it's heavily exposed to house prices. So I'd want to personally think about that fit before I um, thought about buying. I'd rather buy a US bank yep. where I feel the housing market's much more protected, mm. hasn't boomed as much for the last 10 years. Uh, it's more about 30-year mortgage debt, not variable debt, which it is here. And actually quite a lot of the banks in the States are, are, more, um, are less exposed to mortgage debt and more, more broader exposure across a range of business lines, if you like. Well, of course, the US has the experience of 2008 and some little thing called Lehman Brothers. That's right. <laughs> yeah. That little thing in the corner. Just tiny, small. Small, yeah. small thing. Um, if I can kind of get away from, from equities a little bit, we'll come back to gold. But, you know, what, what do you think about, you know, US Treasuries, bonds in particular? I mean, bonds have had the, the absolute year to forget. Yeah, uh, yeah, in, yeah. In terms of that, do you start to nibble away at something like that? I think so. I mean, if you believe inflation is going to dissipate quite quickly, why wouldn't you want a 30-year yield at 35 to 4%? It's very attractive. If, if we normalize inflation over time, yes, I think absolutely. And they've sold off. They've had a blow off top. You know, mm. I think, that you, you know, if you like Elliott Wave analysis, you know, asset prices tend to conclude a move with a blow off top or, or, or sell off. And I think they've had a blow off top on yields and, on, and sell off on price. So, so that's interests me. And actually, I quite like the idea of mini cycles in bonds. So if you look back over 10 years, Generally, bond yields or prices trend for two, two and a half years, and then they turn around, which is a reflection of the economic mini-cycles. And actually, if you think about it, we troughed in August 2020, so we're two and a quarter years out from that now. So we've been trending up on yields for you know, long enough. So time's done, blow-off tops there, recession, you want to buy bonds, inflation dissipate. There's lots of reasons to buy treasuries. Unless you think inflation is going to stick around for a long time. Mm. Well, I, I mean, that's very interesting. And I'm sure there'll be a debate sparked in the comments about whether, yeah. you know, inflation is here to stay or it's finally going to roll off. Um, you, I know you were talking about you made a little bit of moves in gold, which, which we can touch on. But I kind of wanted to actually start on crude oil because I think you wrote recently that maybe you're a little more bearish on energy and crude oil specifically than other analysts might be. Why is that? Well, because um, I don't think the, the, the oil market's priced a recession. Um, and, and normally what happens in the recessions is OPEC obviously cut by 2 million barrels per day on superficially the other day. Uh, but really it was about a million barrels per day mm. when, you, when you take it apart. And what OPEC normally does in recessions is they chase the demand forecast down. So they're trying to balance the supply and demand in the market uh, by restricting the supply as demand comes down. But in recessions, demand comes down pretty chunkily, uh, you know, by... A, a number of millions of barrels per day. So a cut of one million is not enough to get rid of the surpluses. So yeah, I think, I think the oil price has started a journey, a downward journey, and it's, you know, it's sort of peaked in April, May time. And it was fascinating at that time, because in, in April, May, 
everyone told you it was going to 200 bucks. <laughs> you <know>? right. <laughs> and it was an easy call to make. You felt too easy. And you want to do what's uncomfortable in markets. And it was uncomfortable to sell oil then. Mm. Um, but actually, oil started its journey down and it's probably halfway through its pullback. But if you, if you look, I mean, you refer to Australia again exporting natural gas, but you know, we look at some of the, the big players here, you know, Woodside Petroleum, the much bigger Woodside Petroleum now, Santos. Those are just, I suppose, names that I'm throwing out. But, you know, do you then look at Australian energy producers or actually energy producers anywhere, listed energy producers anywhere and say, mm, maybe I won't touch that as quite as closely as say something like the HP or the iron ore miners? Well, you know, commodity super cycles last several years and they have chapters. Mm. And I think we've had the energy chapter for now. We might have another one in a couple of years time. But at the moment, the energy chapter is unwinding because market, you know, price drives a response. We have massive price spikes in all energies, coal, gas, oil, and, and governments got busy. People got busy and they're trying to find other sources and they're very active and, and also demand gets crushed and people stop using other stuff instead or they drive less or whatever it is. So, so I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't be buying energy stuff today. Mm. Uh, I think you'll get more downside in the prices and then you could get a better, more attractive entry price into the energy stocks or mm. if you trade the commodities. But, you know, if I'm a five-year investor, yeah, they, these guys are going to throw off a lot of cash. So, but, but there's no point in getting in early. You don't have to. Yeah, understood. What you did say that you might be willing to move into a little bit, gold. And of course, real yield was so much a part of that story. Why are you starting to make the move into gold now specifically? I think it's probably because I've been listening too much at 1980s Spandau Ballet. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay, now, now we can't get away from this. Explain to me the Spandau Ballet part. Is it, is it gold or go? I can never remember that right, song. Right, okay. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Sorry, a bit random. Um, it was the way you said it. It reminded me of that song. Um, but no, I think, gold, I, I think gold, gold's been uninteresting for two years. Mm. It had a nice little spike on, on, um, on the war, on Putin. And really, it peaked in August 2020, and since then, it hasn't done much. Mm. And what do I like about gold? I, you know, I like the fact that no one owns it. Everyone's bearish. I like the fact that it's been really, really resilient when it should have gone down tons. Mm. You know, the dollar going up, it's not good. Um, it's, by the way, it's not, it's not just an inflation hedge. That's not quite right. Gold is all about real bond yields, the dollar, and, in, and interest rate expectations. All of those have been batting against gold, but it's kind of held in. And it's at a really key level, 16, 17, 16, 70, 80. The other interesting thing about gold, if I can, just quickly, yep. is this unusual thing happening in the gold market. So normally when people trade gold futures, they just roll them every calendar quarter or every month even. Mm. Um, but you can actually, and they do this quite a lot in the oil market, take physical delivery on the expiry of a future. And the oil boys often do it. The gold boys have started doing it. So they're taking physical delivery of gold. They're taking it off the market. When the, when the paper futures expire, which is kind of interesting. So someone's hoarding gold somewhere, which is a nice little underpinning for the price. There you go. Someone's holding gold somewhere. I'm sure we're going to start a Google search <laughs> now where who's holding all the gold. Um, you talked about the US. That's the one thing we, we haven't mentioned. I kind of wanted to, to finish on that if I can. It has just been the story of the year. I mean, I, heard, I think I heard it described not too long ago in, in the financial press as the only trade in town for a while. Do you look to something like the US dollar index when you say, right, this is when I'm willing to, to move a little more money back into risk? 
I think it's a fascinating indicator. And actually predicting its top is very, very hard. And, and many people have been carried out. It's like the opposite of the uh, Japanese long trade for 20 years, you know. Um, that was the sort of strategist graveyard for a long time. But yeah, dollar longs, it's a very good indicator of when liquidity starts to loosen up when the dollar starts topping out. Hard to believe it's going to loosen up when the Fed hasn't even cut and they're still raising rates and they're still doing QT. So, you know, when the dollar tops out, emerging markets are going to look really interesting. Um, some, of, some of the overseas equity markets will look interesting. Equities in general might start looking interesting. Um, and it's a, yeah, it's a very big indicator to watch. It's a big indicator of liquidity. It's very important. This has been a fantastic conversation. Chris Watling, it's been lovely to meet you. Thank, thank you for you. coming in. Thank, thank you, you for joining it. us. Thank you. And thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed that, please do subscribe to the YouTube channel and our website. And of course, for all of you listening on the podcast, don't forget to catch regular episodes of The Rules of Investing with David Thornton. Thank you for joining us.